Welcome to the Contra AI Podcast Season 2. Today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. David Spetzler. David is the president of Keras Life Sciences. He's been there for really the building of the company, the architecting of some of its clinical scientific strategies. And in the context of this, we're going to talk about precision oncology, genomics, transcriptomics, and other factors that actually where diagnostic activities can start to transform both how clinical research is conducted and clinical care. So with no further ado, let's get into the podcast with David. We have the pleasure of actually being here in Phoenix, Arizona, one of the Keras locations as we're doing this. You know, we came together and made some announcements around J.P. Morgan that we're getting together. And I think one of the real catalysts for doing this is when you're taking complex questions of kind of oncological diseases, sometimes the compartmentalization in stovepiping of data actually is a real limitation on kind of being able to create advances the real rationale for getting together is that if we can accelerate new medicines by bringing to bear more actionable insights kind of over the whole patient life, that that might actually start to kind of make a substantial contribution that as independent entities, we may not be able to do at this sort of the same pace. You know, as you kind of think about this, where, where are you and where's your team seeing the power of bringing together portions of the longitudinal clinical record with some of the more recent CARES data? It is the reason why we're doing this, right? So at the end of the day, the way that we improve patient care and patient outcome is by providing options. And so today those options could be take these drugs, don't take these drugs. Uh, but when you have a patient population where you say don't take these drugs, then there's an unmet need there. Yeah. And we need therapies that are going to benefit those patients. Yeah. And so the only way you can properly identify that population is yeah. to go through and say, okay, here's the molecular characteristics of your tumor, and we know that you're not responding to the existing therapies. Yeah. And so without that longitudinal clinical data component, you know, it becomes much more difficult to stratify patients into these buckets where we know how we can help you versus yeah. we don't have anything that can help you. Yeah. And so facilitating broad-based access to that data is going to enable the creation, the development, and the validation of new therapeutic interventions that will have a patient benefit. So your current solid tumor testing is pretty unique and completely unprecedented in the industry in the sense of having a full exome, full transcriptome, and a view of RNA, et cetera. Just as a question, why did you take the approach you took couple other questions from there. Yeah, so we used to run a 592-gene panel, and that was you know, a very, very large panel back when we were doing that. And so we've been collecting our own longitudinal outcomes data uh, since about 2009. And so back in 2017, our data had hit a level of maturity that we could start to evaluate it. And so we built an AI-based predictor of full FOX or full FURY for frontline colorectal cancer patients. And what we found was that there were 67 genes that contributed to that signature, and only about 33% of them were on our competitor's panel 
who was wow. the second biggest player in the space. And so at that moment, we were Only like... Only 33 were on. Were on their panel. So they weren't even wow. measuring the majority of the markers that contribute to the signature. Okay. And so we saw that, and we were like, wow, if we can do this well yeah. with 592 genes, how much yeah. better are we going to be able to do if we have whole exome, whole transcriptome? Because the results of that signature lead to a 17-month increase in overall survival for patients. So that's a... A bigger increase than most drugs for stage four cancer patients. That is more than most. And it's not take this drug or take that drug. It's take this one first and that one second. So every patient is getting both drug regimens. It's just the sequence of them. So getting the sequence right has that kind of profound impact on survival. And so it became clear that, in fact, we were in a position, a unique position, to start to do the fundamental research to identify these things. And so we made that investment to develop a whole transcriptome, whole exome assay, and standardize all of our testing on that. So we don't have small panels anymore. Every single patient that we test is getting a whole exome and whole transcriptome. Just even the way you described it, there was no commercial lens being placed on the language you used. You were actually bringing clinical utility to the patient as the barometer to dictate kind of indirect the direction of your actual product, if you will, strategy, if I think that a test as kind of being a product, not a competitive comparator or things of that nature. In fact, if anything, you seem to be divorcing it from the activities of what has been done historically in the field altogether. Yeah, so our fundamental belief is that if you do the right thing, then eventually the world will recognize it and will be appropriately compensated for the testing that yeah. we're doing. So, you know, the world today doesn't pay for a lot of this stuff, and that's that's okay because it's on us to prove the utility of it, and yeah. we're willing to do that. So yeah. that's how it should be. So a lot of people that may even be listening to this might generally think of actually a next-generation sequencing-based testing approach as being a almost a binary definitive answer of, I have the mutation, I don't have the mutation, so this particular drug may or may not be the one that should be appropriately be considered. But your last statement of saying the order and the sequence of treatment kind of evolves from it, this is actually almost more thinking treatment strategies where actually that order and sequence is material to accomplishing the outcomes. So this is almost informing the entire program of treatment, not an individual drug selection decision. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, there are certain instances in the care path where it will dictate a particular choice, but we know that there is evolutionary pressure that's being applied to the tumors as a result of these therapeutic interventions that are going to cause things to bifurcate one direction or the other. And it's incumbent upon us to then determine the likelihood of those things and provide better answers. And that's really where the blood test then starts to come in as being so important because to be able to monitor in real time a patient's molecular response to the therapy, both from an efficacy of the existing therapy, but also as a predeterminant of what we should do next is going to be, you know, so radically changing for the current treatment paradigm. And when you think about solid tumor, next generation sequencing, now actually with liquid kind of in combination. How do you see these now starting to play together both for primary diagnosis? When will diagnosis start to take place? And it sounds like surveillance may change. With the rates of technological improvement that we're seeing, 
the cost is going to come down. It's going to become very reasonable to be testing everyone all the time on these. And so we're going to be able to identify the underlying signal that is cancer and where it's coming from, uh, which will aid in early detection of cancer, which is probably the very best thing we could accomplish yeah. so that it doesn't turn into a bad disease, uh, but we catch it early. But even when we miss it then, being able to understand how effective was the intervention. Yeah. So you know, minimal residual disease testing to understand was the surgery curative or not? And if not, okay, now let's go on some sort of chemotherapy or targeted agent or even immunotherapy. Yeah. And is that working or not? And how are these things evolving? And so we start to have the ability to have longitudinal molecular yeah. measurements to go alongside the longitudinal clinical data. Yeah. And that's going to be the most powerful. Yeah. If we think about this uh, intersection between clinical data that may be found in the EHR or claims data or other components, and now I'm adding testing as opposed to being you know, discrete at a point in time, now also has its own longitudinality that comes together. And even your point about MRD, which sometimes that surveillance layer was sometimes allocated to a phase four or follow-up studies that may have been required for a breakthrough designation drug. Part of what I'm also coming away with is this notion about what follow-up is, this notion about what was the durability and long-term safety of it and things of that nature. Was it sparing on other peripheral organs that kept that patient healthier? It sounds like these approaches will be generating sets of data that historically we didn't have that might be changing the nature of what clinical research looks like. Well, we've never had the ability to make these measurements before, not at the scale and at the mass and the depth that we can today. And so, you know, if you look historically at every major advancement in human longevity was yeah. predated by technological innovation. Yeah. And the invention of the microscope is yeah. one of the best ones where microscope is invented, we discover germs, and that leads to antibiotics, which had the most profound effect to date on human longevity. And so what next generation sequencing is, is a new molecular microscope. Yeah. So we're now seeing into the molecular status of our cells yeah and specifically diseased cells, in a way that we've never been able to before. Yeah. And that's going to allow us to create new tools to combat what's going wrong. Because yeah. at the end of the day, disease are cells going wrong. Yeah. And it actually doesn't matter if we're talking about oncology or rheumatoid arthritis or yeah. Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Yeah. All of these are going to have an underlying molecular component. Yeah. And the only way we're going to discover that molecular component is actually by measuring a lot of patients and then tracking their clinical outcomes so that we can start to understand, oh, hey, I can, in fact, we found the early signal for Alzheimer's. Yeah. We just didn't know it because yeah. you know, we needed to collect and wait for the data to mature. Yeah. And so this is going to revolutionize healthcare, yeah. and it has to. Society can't continue the way that we are now. The toxicity of the financial impact is too great for most people, and I think diagnostics is how we solve that problem. This has been the promise of diagnostics that actually, in fact, ultimately would be more directives wrong, more informative, and enable more choices in a much higher quality outcome and predictable way, which it sounds like we're now finally getting a bit closer to this, which was the dialogue when precision oncology started coming to the forefront in 2000 and around that particular time period. We're finally making inroads. Long way to go, but have had a good start so far. Let me take it back to our collaboration for a moment, and I'm gonna ask you to wear multiple hats. If you were talking to one of our potential biopharma collaborators, 
And if we were talking to the leadership of the translational medicine group, and if you were giving them a little bit of your three, four, five key message points about what the collaboration between the two of us with them could do to power their particular translational programs, you know, what would you say to them? So if we look at why are so many drugs failing in clinical trials, it comes down to accrual for one. Sometimes the inclusion-exclusion criteria are so tight and so narrow that, in fact, there isn't a viable population of patients that qualify, and so you can never get the numbers. And so one very important aspect of our collaboration is being able to query for that, to say, wait a second, have we designed this trial in a way that it can be successful? Now, and, and that's a decision that is completely independent on the efficacy of the drug. That's just a design question. So that's really important. And then you know, understanding the biomarker status of the patients so that you're enriching for the subset of patients that will respond is, is really key. And so that actually probably should start back in discovery long before it's even hitting the translational group. But being forward thinking about that is really critical. And I think that's one of the major advantages of doing whole exome, whole transcriptome, because no matter what biomarkers it's going to be, the data is there. It's been measured. And so there's kind of an insurance policy that's put in place by doing broad testing early. Now, that's a second thing where you can actually have a really nice, strong response signal, but maybe it's only 10% of patients. And so instead of that being a program then that has to be shut down, okay, so there's enrichment, the total market is smaller, but within that 10%, you're getting incredible response rates. Well, that's still a very viable therapeutic agent that shouldn't be turned off. That is something that people would benefit from and should keep going. And then as you start to think about, okay, so got this biomarker, got this good program, enrolling patients on trial. Well, the hope is that trial is going to be successful and going to have an approved drug. So how are you going to find the patients moving forward that need to go on that particular therapy? And so that's another way of appreciating the data that we're generating because it allows you to find the patients that should be eligible. Because let's say you get an approval that is a biomarker-specific group in the third line. Well, there you go. Now it's a combination of clinical and molecular data to identify the patient that should be getting this particular therapy. And now it's very, very difficult for oncologists to keep up with this because there's, on average, an approval a week, a new indication for a cancer drug every single week. And so some of these things are, are so rare and so esoteric that a practicing oncologist may only see it four or five times over the course of five years. And so how could they ever be expected to remember and identify that patient? And so you know, having a system of support that enables the oncologist to be aware of and given the information for timely intervention is, yeah. is absolutely critical. And so these are some of the many ways by which we can support not just the development of yeah. drugs, but the administration of yeah. drugs at the appropriate time to benefit patients. Because that's the most important thing at the end of the day. So I always hear these with like a couple of different lenses on. One is changing, evolving, advancing, improving the standard of care by bringing that information to bear in an actionable and easy to consume way because these clinical environments are increasingly busy. Each are taking care of more new diagnosed patients per year, year over year. So there's always that time pressure 
So I think the more accurate, more precise, more actionable that data and information can be provided, that actually is going to raise the level of that care, which I think is certainly the best interest of the patient, but also I think the practice and the individual would say that's in their own best interest. But also if we're thinking about it even from a clinical research and identification of patients for clinical study, clinical trial eligibility, that's equally difficult. And in fact, more areas would like to be actually offer larger research programs, but sometimes even there, the actionability and actually being able to find, identify those patients is quite complex. Well, we consider the clinical research really as part of clinical care. So it's almost inevitable for most late-stage cancer patients that they will fail on the treatments that are approved today. And so at that point, their only treatment options are trials. And so going through and finding appropriate trials that maximize the likelihood of clinical benefit for them is an important part of clinical care and shouldn't be overlooked. So the more we can facilitate access to clinical trials, again, that's in the best interest of patients and in the best interest of the world. You've personally been one of the more articulate individuals about the notion that we're going to constantly be pushing this ability to identify the patient as actually having the disease may, in fact, move earlier. And if I also just think about what we see in the biopharma industry, there's an awareness of that. I think it's early, but there's an awareness that certain treatment strategies themselves for how they're thinking about where their intervention would come into play is also pushing a little bit earlier. How do you see that occurring? Because as you've even articulated to me, the outcomes in survival and maybe even curative nature or placing it into a non-acute chronic state is much higher when we move a lot earlier. How do you see this evolving? What's the pace that you think this might be able to evolve at? So I think we're approaching an inflection point on that due to the availability of sequencing technology today that has advanced so much. And so having these blood tests that are reasonably priced to the point where it's available to the broader population is going to facilitate a huge leap forward in this area. And we're right now at that precipice and being able to generate that data in mass to be able to truly understand that impact because it comes with a series of risks. You don't want to overdiagnose cancer, right? So we're getting cancer every single day and it's not a problem because our immune systems are killing it and shedding it into circulation. And so, you know, you take a blood test at the wrong time and what you find is a cancer your immune system has already killed. So it's not a cancer you need to worry about. It doesn't matter. That does not mean that you have cancer. And so kind of the monitoring of what's happening is going to be of critical importance. Equally important is going to be understanding the immune system and the status of it. So, you know, in that situation, it's going to be a cancer your immune system knows about it. So you don't need to worry about a cancer your immune system has already identified. It's the cancer your immune system doesn't know about that you need to start to worry about. And so we need to start to develop these data sets. We need to start studying this. And be very cognizant of the true endpoint to benefit has got to be an improvement in mortality. Because the other big scary thing that exists with these studies that can be overlooked are the lead time bias that is created. So you you find the cancer earlier, you show the survival is longer, but it's not actually longer because you've got the benefit of finding it earlier. So that lead time bias is very important to take into consideration because The last thing we want to do is put the burden of another cost on society that is, in fact, not benefiting people. 
So I, I think the studies that we're doing are going to address those. I mean, there is a good, solid way of making sure that we can understand that we are, in fact, delivering benefit to humanity as a whole. And so we're going to see tremendous improvement in how these tests work and function over the next few years. Because uh, I mean, the technology just keeps improving more and more and more. I would imagine in 10 years we'll be sitting on this couch like, oh, yeah, I remember when we had a small panel of whole exome and whole transcriptome. Because at that point we'll be doing the entire nucleic acid repertoire, the whole genome, the mitochondrial DNA, all the RNA species that are there, all in one test. It's, thousand x depth of coverage or five thousand x depth of coverage pretty exciting 10-year period of time it's inevitable i mean that is where the technology is going to drive us that is the best way to characterize the biology it's very clear to see where the end of the road is the the twists and turns we have to take to get there it's going to be the fun of the journey but the destination is is pretty clear absolutely the ethos of keras and of concert ai and how the teams work together had a level of effortlessness and collaboration that has almost seemed like one organization. In fact, even some of the biopharma sponsors and programs we've interacted with have noted how it just came together in a very unified way that actually they weren't having to affect any coordination of us here. The reason why I'm saying that is that sometimes allows people to have slightly more audacious goals and place slightly more audacious expectations of what should be realized because friction's not there and friction usually liberates a little bit of those innovation. You know, if you had to put your own aspiration or expectation, let's even put it as an expectation since we're in the roles and we can state some expectation yeah. for ourselves, what would be your aspirational expectation that you'd place on us for this next year period of time? So part of the reason that I think there has been such a smooth interaction is because the fundamental mission and goals align. At the end of the day, it's how do we provide benefit that will be realized by patients? So when you have alignment on the mission, that is the first criteria that makes it important. And then I think mutual recognition of expertise, where we're bringing something to the table that that you don't have, and you're bringing something to the table that, that we don't have. And so when you can have that kind of respect, then... Again, it just makes it so much easier. Now, when you get those two things happening simultaneously, then it becomes almost a responsibility to get it done faster and bigger. And so the way that we have traditionally measured ourselves are we always like to reduce things to how many additional human life years have we created through our testing this year? Because we can see the extension of human life when patients get the right treatments. And so for us in our collaboration, so much of this is going to be about how many new therapies did we enable the development of? How many new therapies have we enabled the approval of? And then at the end of the day, the way that you can start to understand that benefit and that impact is again in how many human life years have we then added to the planet? Thinking about things in that term always brings it back to what matters, yeah. and it's the patient. You know, we're not selling cars. We're not you know, making widgets. What we're doing is trying to help people on the very worst day of their life yeah. and extend that life. And so we should always be mindful and cognizant of that because it's a very big responsibility, yeah. and you never want to lose sight of that. So our 
audacious goals and expectations should be measured in the thousands of human life years of benefit uh, that we create together. I love the vision. I love the way of holding us accountable to that particular goal. Uh, when we set ourselves up, we were looking back and we saw that it took 40 years to get a 25% reduction in cancer deaths. And we, even as we were kind of early in the company set up, we said, that's great. 25% is great. 40 years is a long time. Population base is a lot bigger now. And so there's a lot more at stake. And that actually took far too long. And we should be able to do that in a fraction of that time. So back to your notion. So I think it's a little bit of how do we take what we can bring and the insights we can generate and work with those that can actually have the greatest impact on those human life years. I think that's a great vision. David, thank you so much for being part of the Concerta podcast. Our two organizations have been able to bring together quite differentiated capabilities that have enabled some of the largest clinical genomic data sets available for biopharma research. And now working across the Precision Oncology Alliance and in a variety of other areas, we're beginning to kind of create very question-specific data sets with NCI community and other academic medical centers. So thank you for the partnership and thank you for being part of the Concert AI podcast. If you want to learn more about Concert AI's initiatives, please visit us at www.concertai.com. Wherever you are, good morning, good afternoon, and good night.